Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is music producer, mixer, and educator, Kevin Kelly. First of all, who would have thought, but getting nominated for a Grammy may have a negative effect on the creative side of the nominee. A new Yale study suggests that Grammy nominations often come with this downside. Now, this has researched over 60 years of Grammy winners and nominees, and they found that if you win a Grammy, you grow creatively because you feel empowered. So the next album, the next record, the next release is something new. But if you're nominated and you lose, you tend to become cautious and then conform to the style and norms of the genre. Now, considering that one in five or one in 10 win, that means that the net effect is negative on those nominees. The losers, the nominees, tend to stick close to what got them nominated in hopes of winning the next time around. The study also speculates that the loss might cause anxiety that makes it harder and harder to be even more creative. If this is true, awards are ultimately bad for artists, the genre, and fans as well. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Also, I'm pleased to announce that the fifth edition of my Mixing Engineer's Handbook is now available. It's totally updated and includes new sections on mixing and immersive audio, self-mastering, new mixer interviews, and much more. Get your copy at a special discounted price at bobbyosinski forward slash handbook. You can also find it on Amazon and Apple Books. And remember, you can learn all about the latest in music, audio, and production news when you sign up for my newsletter at bobbyosinski.com. There you'll also find out about openings for my latest online classes and special events. That's bobbyosinski.com. Now, something that tends to be overlooked is the fact that vinyl records are really bad for the environment. And considering that now they have the highest demand that they've had in 30 years, maybe it's time to get a green solution. Well, a Dutch company out of Eindhoven thinks that they have a greener fix. They have a new vinyl presser that they came up with that uses 90% less energy and provides 40% more capacity. That's not all, though. It doesn't use PVC, which is the most damaging of plastics and what's been used in records since they first came out. In fact, they use PET. PET is what you find in bottles that you recycle. It's a much more durable plastic, and, of course, it's a lot greener. There's a problem, though, in that a lot of people say, well, we have done this a long time ago, but it doesn't sound as good. Now they're saying, though, that you shouldn't be worried about the sound. The molecular attributes of this plastic hold up to PVC, and in listening tests, this tends to be what people are hearing. Now, the bad side is that the cost will be higher, at least initially, but this is going to be a lot better off for the planet in the long run. My guest this week is Kevin Kelly, who's a producer, mixer, and longtime educator with the hosts of Major Label, Film Score, and Jingle Credits. These include projects by Blondie, Edgar Winter, and Rick Wakeman, among others, that he worked on from his well-known studio called The Workshop. For 14 years, Kevin was also the producer for the WLIR-FM live concert series that featured Hall & Oates, Billy Joel, The Police, Charlie Daniels Band, Peter Tosh, Ziggy Marley, 
Pure Prairie League, and many more. And he also served as co-producer and chief engineer for a series of short-form radio shows for 60-second LP. Kevin also taught studio recording technology for 22 years at Nassau Community College, and he continues to teach one adjunct course per semester there. During the interview, we spoke about the importance of networking, the new generation of plugins, how multitasking has changed attention spans, analog summing during mixing, and much more. I spoke with Kevin via Zoom from a studio in Huntington, New York. Let's get into it. Let's go back to your background, uh, how you get into the business. You're a bass player, right? Yep. Yep. Yeah, I was always the guy in the band who could make the PA sound good, you know. So, uh, you know, and I also had a real interest in in uh, playing around with tape decks and, you know, recording on one and putting it through a mixer and adding a mic or two to it. You know, the precursor to cell sync and all that stuff. Yeah, I'm that old. Uh, and, uh, you know, I guess it goes, you know, the cliche is it goes back to seeing the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. But the, the truth of the matter is uh, there was this nun um, and it was... I guess 1959 or 60 and, and she directed a choir and I took piano lessons from her and I was just so stunned by how musical she was like that the lesson of, you know, musicality was, I was just in awe, you know? So I always knew I wanted to do music and I thought it was going to be some kind of more serious kind of music when I was a a kid taking piano lessons. But uh, then all of a sudden the Beatles came and I, Stopped playing piano and started playing in bands. You know how that goes. Only too well, yes. And then at some point, you know, to to bring it to the engineering, which has been the, you know, kind of, it's been bass playing and recording and mixing for the last, I hate to say it, but 50 years at least. I actually went into a studio on Long Island one day. There was an aha moment here. And um, it was called Ultrasonic in Hempstead. And they had done a whole bunch of great stuff. And I got it at Vita and uh, Cool in the Gang and Leader of the Pack and all this stuff, you know, and it had history. And, you know, I was this little, you know, pissant kid who was coming in to record his band. And we were, I was waiting in the lounge and they had the door open to the control room and they were doing a Tidy Bowl commercial. And I heard the sound of a toilet flush on a pair of Altec 604s. And I've never been the same since. I mean, it sounded so amazing. I, I remember the takeaway for me is, can you imagine how great a good band could sound over that system, you know? So, uh, you know, there was kind of no looking back. It was all the holy grail of trying to get to that great, big, open, clean representation, you know? And that's, and here I am two careers later in terms of teaching and then coming back to this, uh, and, you know, feeling the same, you know, the same search. Well, let's talk about the workshop studios because that was a big part of your life for a long time. Yeah, it it was a, a big part of my life. It ended and then it started up again. <laughs> you know what I mean? In the last five years or six years. So one of the engineers, as a matter of fact, the engineer from that session at Ultrasonic, my first recording session, became my partner at the workshop uh, at some point. Um, he, he always kind of wanted to open his own place. And, and uh, you know, I was scratching away money playing cover tunes and uh, putting equipment together. And we opened, uh, well, I actually had a 
physical studio in my folks' house, which is, you know, kind of got to be pretty serious. It was eight track when that was a big deal. Uh, and as a matter of fact, that's where I did the Blondie stuff that, that originally got us talking, I guess. Uh, and then, you know, actually that summer that I was working with Blondie, we were out looking for commercial space. We were, you know, that's when we wanted to try and find a place to build a real room. And, uh, and the workshop, I guess, the real studio opened its doors at some point in 75, I want to say, uh, late 75. And, you know, I owned it until the late 80s. So it was a solid 15 years. And then it continued to be a studio, you know, with other owners for a total of like 35 or more years, which kind of validated all the work we did on the building. You know what I mean? It, it was kind of fun to... Uh, to realize, to, to go back in there. As a matter of fact, I went in and taught a class in there in my second career. <laughs> the college had bought time in the room and I took a group of students over. And I remember going in and saying, yeah, I put up that sheetrock right there. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a long time. But it, it, uh, it grew to, uh, you know, it was a great time in the studio business, in my estimation, at least, the 70s and 80s. Um, and we went from eight track to 16 track to 24 track, two inch to two, two inch machines to two rooms to, you know, it's like, that's, you know, it was, and it was kind of necessary to, to be that frenetic in the, in the improvements and the, and the growth, because there was so many studios, you know, and, uh, you know, we joined spars and, uh, you know, it was, I was a little kid on the block compared to the hit factory and the record plant and, uh, you know, all these, you know, Jim Tarzier from, uh, Oh God, where was he from? Sigma. Um, Walters from Power Station, all those guys. And, you know, eating lunch with them and essentially once in a while uh, taking a cast off session from one of, you know, that they were looking to dump on a smaller studio or whatever. It was, it was actually a kind of a great time. You know, we kind of grew and started doing primarily major label work. I did Ego Winters standing on rock there. I did uh, a bunch of work with Rick Wakeman. Arlen Ross first three or four albums there. There was it. It really started going. It was a. It was a kind of a great thing. I love the era because it was new. It was you know the technology was was unfolding in ways that were you know kind of eye opening and interesting. And I still feel that a lot of the work done in that era uh, stands up. Maybe even in some ways better than some of the stuff getting cut now. I mean, a well-aligned 30th, two-inch machine and a really good plus four console and some great mics can create some great product. It's funny, obviously, the digital audio has made things much more democratic. You know, everybody can do stuff in their own homes, and that's a wonderful thing, you know, that that people can be more in control of the process of recording their music, which back in the day, the keys to the kingdom where you had to go to a studio and pay the money and hire real musicians. And then there was MIDI, you know, but um, you know, I think that some of the stuff from that era is some of the best sounding stuff ever recorded, regardless of, of uh, you know, what we can now do. I agree. I think we hit our audio quality peak, you know, in the late seventies, early eighties, and it hasn't gotten better since then yeah i mean there's been reason to be excited about new things a lot of times since then you know what i mean but 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 uh 
but no, I think in the overall, some of the stuff from there is just, we're still, it's funny. I mean, the, when you look at the list of plugins that UA sells, or you look at the, uh, you know, or, or any of them, uh, Waves, you know, and it's basically the history of that era. It's, it's comical because I remember finding three actual pull techs for sale from little radio stations who didn't want this old tube crap around, you know what I mean? For 90 bucks or 150 bucks that are now probably worth eight or 10 grand. And now that, you know, now the plugins that we use that emulate them even have some of the patina of wear all over the front face and all that. It's just kind of comical to me. I think now we've kind of hit the wall where just about anything that could be emulated has been done. And now we're getting down to the bottom of the barrel. I see some some emulations coming out, and I'm thinking to myself, nobody wanted to use the real thing back then. Why, <laughs> why are they doing this? You know, you know? Uh, oh, you're so right. I remember having some lexicon delays, and I remember we had we had this one Korg. I probably shouldn't say this kind of stuff, and but I remember we had this one delay that we kind of would never want to go to, but we would if we needed to. And now that now it's you know it's uh, you know, a couple hundred bucks from UA. You know what I yeah, mean? Like, yeah. It's like, I'll bet it sounds just as bad. But, uh, you know, I'm curious. You, you mentioned spars, and I've always wondered about this because I was never part of a studio that was, you know, I was a client. I wasn't a studio owner. Got you. But you found that spars was actually something that was helpful to you. I think it really was because, it, you know, the New York chapter, and I can't speak to the to the entirety of the organization everywhere, in the U.S. or whatever, but it was a really uh, you know kind of friendly group of people, and it was you could you know sit down or have a have a beer ahead of the monthly luncheon uh, with somebody who had a six room studio that Paul McCartney had just left. You know what I mean? And and swap uh, information and you know get information. I used to volunteer to to do presentations with other guys and all that, and you know just try to be part of the world. I I can tell you that there was one day at Gallagher Steakhouse, uh, which was the monthly spars meeting joint, that um, that a guy named Jim Zach, who owned Nola Studios, which was right across the street from Carnegie Hall, had a, you know, a big, beautiful place. And um, he came in and he goes, you know, there's this label. They're, they're an offshoot of CBS and they want to do 11 records they want to do them really fast. And they, you know, I don't know, is that something you'd be interested in? And I, you know, I, I think there was foam coming out of my mouth at the time, you know, and we wound up doing a, an imprint label called ambient sound did 11 records with all these fifties groups that were still around. This was the early eighties and with new original material. And, you know, that was literally standing with a Budweiser in my hand at a, at, at a spars meeting and getting the name of the guy and calling him up and having him come out. And it, it all happened, you know? So networking at, at its best, you know, real networking. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So then the studio business, I think for everybody, it's a business and it's difficult. Then you decided to make a switch to teaching people about it. Yeah. It's the, there were other, I won't say it's that the studio business was dying and therefore I needed a different thing. I'll tell you what had happened. Somewhere around 85, 86, I started freelancing. 
a lot. And I would I was able to do you know a lot of sessions in New York. I did a couple of things in LA. I even did a couple of albums in Tokyo. And I was really enjoying it. But when you did an album back in those days, you know, it was kind of like a six weeks in a row thing with two days off, you know, or you'd had maybe every other Sunday off or something like that. And my older daughter was two, you know, and I was just not getting to be part of her life even a little bit. <laughs> you know what I mean? It was just, I remember just getting in a car and driving into Manhattan to, to you know, back pocket studios or someplace like that. And, and being there until 11 or 12 or one, and then getting in the car and coming home, everybody's in bed, you know, and it just didn't feel right. And I also, there was a little bit of a wake up call where I realized I was now well into my thirties and recording people who were 10 years younger rather than my age. And how long is that going to happen for? I don't know. It was a bunch of realizations. And uh, there was a guy uh, who ran the program at SUNY Fredonia, um, the teaching, you know, the, the uh, Tone Meister studio program. His name is David Moulton. And, and uh, you know, he became a friend because he, get, he sent interns to my studio. So we had a lot of his guys as interns. And I saw how he kind of walked around behind all these guys and gave them a leg up and really helped them find their career paths and and give him good advice and all that. And I was, I was kind of taken with his way and his demeanor. And, and, you know, I thought, gee, maybe someday I'll do what he does, you know? And uh, I guess I, I feel like I'm getting way too long winded about this, but uh, obviously you kept this stuff down, I guess, but, you know, he had me come up and do some sort of presentation at, at Berkeley when he got to Berkeley. And, um, and then there was an opening up there and I, and I was offered a job up there. And I realized that I couldn't afford to leave New York to give up all of the engineering work that I had to go do something in a different city where I'd have no contacts. I would go from being able to work some and teaching to being, you know, to having nothing. And then uh, that very, within two or three months of that, NASA Community College decided to start a program in studio recording technology. And I, you know, dusted off the same resume I brought up to Berkeley and um, and wound up getting that job and staying there from 1989 to 2015, <laughs> you know? So, and what was, uh, what was wonderfully lucky about that was, first of all, the rest of the faculty there was real top shelf. I mean, I, I met a lot of great people who mentored me as in, the, from the teaching standpoint, and we were, we were, beginning something. So I wasn't being handed course outlines that somebody else had taught with expectations that I would just do exactly what had always been done. There was a decent amount of latitude to design curriculum and to mold the, you know, the course offerings and the like. And, and, um, and that in itself was really interesting to take a look back at the industry. I just spent 15 years really entrenched in and, you know, and trying to make a real valid set of courses for people who wanted to be able to enter that world. You know, the danger, of course, is that there's a lot of people who work, they stop, and then they teach, and they assume the world doesn't change. Yeah. And that, you know, and lucky for me, I had this kind of second job, if you will, or as they now call it, a side hustle, where I was uh, producing syndicated radio for a syndicator. We were putting out 365 
times three, like roughly a thousand shows a year, real quick. And it was all Pro Tools editing. And it was all, it was literally sound tools and a, and a Mac SE and then graduating to a, the old 442 and a, and a, you know, original Pro Tools unit. So the point is a lot of guys my age who had come up in the era I had come up did not transition to DAWs. I was like, are you kidding? This is great. You know, I, I mean, as much as I, I, you know, you don't have to get down on your knees and align an Otari MTR 90 every morning before you start. Are you kidding me? This is great. This digital stuff. And um, the fact that I was able to do that radio production gig, I had DAW editing, I had Pro Tools chops and that along with my experience in real studio context, you know, I think kept the program valid for a lot of years and, and, and all that. No, I hear you. I've run into it a lot. I, you know, since COVID, I haven't been out speaking at various colleges, but I did for quite a while. And I was always struck by one of two things, how knowledgeable and experienced some of the instructors were. And on the other hand, how neophyte they were being one step ahead of the students sometimes. Yeah. And there's more of those, unfortunately. Here's a good question for you having to do with colleges of any kind. One of the things that I find interesting is the fact that just about every community college as well as major college, they all have fantastic studio facilities anymore. Yeah. And I look at them and I think, well, that's all well and good, but how many of the people <laughs> that are actually going through this are, are going to be using this? So where do you come down on that? I mean, it's obviously, you know, you have to know some of it and you have to go through it. And I, I, I get that. But the emphasis seems to be hard on hardware. You know, I think that there, that's true. If, if the, you know, the people doing the purchasing for the program are thinking about the big bang zoom studio that gets the students in and want, you know, on, on open house days, uh, the truth of the matter is what's more valuable to them, I find, is, you know, labs where they can go in a room, sit down at a at a recent computer with a control surface, a MIDI keyboard controller, a set of phones and, you know, work on modern software and take what has been discussed in the large room, in the large studio with a real tube tech or pull tech and with a, with a real, you know, API 550A and a real 1073 Neve and all that. And they and they now see that they've seen the physical thing. They've heard it in the classroom studio. And now they can go back and, you know, pull it out of a menu and have some context. And they now know like, OK, that's supposed to sound like this. That's why it's there. That's why this old looking thing that looks like it crawled out of a World War II movie is on my screen right now. You know, and and now I, I kind of get what I should be trying to do with it or something. Yeah, you're right. If, in fact, they do understand that and get the reference point, the reference point is is everything, but you have to point it out. Okay, here's how it's supposed to sound. <laughs> you know, try to match that, and it doesn't always happen. No, but I tell you what, there, there have been a few classes that I've done where I've specifically, uh, like, set up some hardware processor and, and brought them all up one at a time to adjust it, you know, take a you know, a compressor and have them understand, 
where the threshold acts and, and how the ratio changes it and then how to make up gain manually and all that. And then I'll put signal through a couple of say DBX 160s and then bring in it, bring the plugin down and have them do it on that or have them adjust uh, an EQ like a GML uh, stereo EQ or a Pultec or something like that and then have them pull down a plugin and do it. And there is something to the sound, the presentation, the sound stage of some of the analog stuff that, that just about everybody in the room goes, yeah, that plugin's great, but it's not quite that thing, you know? Yeah. And as you know, and I'm not trying to be, God, I feel like I, in answering that question, I'm, I'm, I'm coming off like some sort of a, it's the old analog stuff is the best, but it's not, that's not the point at all they need context for why they were emulated. And once they get that context, then maybe they can go out and crank on the, on the plugins. You know, the one thing that's always impressed me more about plugins though, about any of this stuff is stuff that we couldn't do, you know, in the analog domain. I mean, I, one of the things that's wonderful about immersing yourself into digital audio and pro tools and all the wonderful companies that make third-party plugins is that like, well, look ahead limiting who would have dreamt. You know what I mean? Like, you know, back in 1970, I would have given anything for that. Well, one of the things about plugins that I really like now is the fact that developers are thinking outside the emulations. They're reaching for new things that we hadn't thought about or weren't capable of doing in the analog domain. And I find that much more attractive than trying to make another version of an 1176. I totally a hundred percent agree. Um, I mean, that's, that's where it's got to go. You know, the, the fab filter stuff, you know, they're not bogged down in, in, you know, in trying to recreate the past and in doing a great job at it. But I totally agree with what you said. And I would just restate it if I can. Yeah. 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 You stopped teaching and when 2015? Well, there was a, <laughs> there was a buyout, you know, and uh, all I saw was, Hmm, if I do that, maybe I can uh, go back and make some music again. The truth is, uh, I stopped full time then, and I continued to teach at least one adjunct course a semester since then and through the pandemic. Uh, I keep threatening to not go back, and I just yesterday signed a contract for one more. We'll see. Okay, so that leads me to my next question. How have students changed over the time that you've been teaching? So now I have to realize that some of them may hear this. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> All right. And that's, uh, there's some really great things that have happened. I mean, they're, they're much more facile with technology. It doesn't, it, they don't stumble around on computers like they did in 1995. It's more second nature to them to look at a user interface and to try to suss it out. Um, so that's, that's a real positive. I think there's an issue, and it may even have to do with the pandemic or that's a factor of attention span. I think work ethic is different than it used to be. I won't say it doesn't exist. I'm not going to sit there and, you know, talk about how we used to walk 20 miles to school with no shoes. I really feel that there is a decline in work ethic. This, this is an art and a science. And there's a lot of information that you want in your back pocket to be able to be really good at what you do. To be able to make that big, beautiful mix, you have to understand the technology that might come up and have an artistic 
you know, kind of view of the thing as a whole so that you're not doing things that are silly. And that takes time and that takes study. You know, that doesn't mean everybody has to go to a college to do it. Um, a lot of people are really good at doing their own research and, and, and learning on their own. And some people are and some people aren't. But I think that what, I'm, what I question is, are people willing to put in the time to get really good at something? It's a little bit like playing. You know, it's a little bit like the craft of, you know, being a really good player with really good chops or a singer with really good pitch. I mean, I think that this generation's musicians and singers are as creative and as wonderful as ever. I'm not sure they, they have gone through or been dragged through <laughs> those situations that get you to be a real tight player in a rhythm section, you know, like our generation got to do. And I think that's that musical education is a is a real advantage. I don't mean that if you don't do that, you're not a real player, but it's really helpful. I just I you know, their interest level in that stuff has waned a bit. See, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that it's been proven that multitasking doesn't work, scientifically proven. But everybody grows up now multitasking. And as a result, it's hard to concentrate on one thing, just one thing for a long time. I think you're right. I think our environment is so oriented towards that, that our attention spans are shorter, all, all of that stuff. And that we're, well, think about it. When I, when I started doing this at any given session, you know, there was an engineer, there was an arranger, there was a producer, there, you know what I mean? There were musicians who played their instruments and now that's all one guy with a laptop and an interface, you know, or often is. And, and so there's all those hats and those, all those people in the past maybe narrow cast their careers and they learned a very specific set of skills. Now you have to know all of it, which is kind of daunting. And, you know, these kids are presented with a reality that's pretty harsh. You know, they have to be able to do it all. They have to be able to write the song, sing the song, promote themselves, you know, record it, master it, you know. The students that you have, are they musical? Are they musicians first? Um, I would say the majority are. Okay. There's a reason why I ask that. I have a really good friend who's done well in his career, 18 Grammys, and he's teaching at a college part-time. I don't want to say he's disrespected, but that's not the case at all. He's uh, unrecognized because he's from another generation. And he says most of the students that he has, all they want to do is they want to make beats. And they're not musicians so much as they are beat makers. They don't have a musical background. And I keep on saying... You know, that's not the right place for you because it's like a brain surgeon that's going to take out a splinter from somebody, you know. <laughs> You're like miles ahead of where the, they can even perceive. But that's not the case for you. It might even be miles off to the side, you know what I mean? Because their their endeavor is kind of just as impressive to other people. And um, I don't know. I've actually, in thinking about what you just said, one of the things that comes to mind is when we get a really a really kind of amazing student who comes to us real hungry and, and wanting to learn, they bring a lot to the table. Mm. They are the ones who, when I say, hey, did anybody hear about like, you know, some piece of news that comes up on your podcast or from production expert or, or from Avid and making an announcement, they already know. And they, and they, and they have their own take on it and they want to know yours and they want to modify their thinking 
based on other. And, you know, often I'm learning about stuff through them because of how fanatically interested they are in the latest and greatest. I love it. I mean, I, I love when there's dialogue in a classroom. Of course, I want to direct it. I want to keep us on topic. But yeah. I like when people present their own experiences and that enhances what we're doing. Okay, uh, let's change the topic a little bit because I was looking at your website and you made a point of saying that for mixing, you much prefer analog summing and also the fact that your recalls are fairly quick. When I came back to doing this you know, more seriously full-time five, six years ago, I realized that I kind of liked the idea of the gear that I've collected over many years that, you know, would normally use on a front end, you know, like tracking through the stuff, you know, compressors, limiters, EQs, and the like. I have always liked using them in a mix. And, I, you know, I wanted to figure out a way to, to be able to easily integrate them without it becoming, well, instead of just double-clicking the session open and we start working, I didn't want it to be an hour-long process just to get back to where you want to restart. So um, for one thing, the analog summer that I use is a, the Neve 8816 with an 8804 uh, fader pack, and it has uh, a recall program. So for starters, all the pan positions, all of the, you know, basically everything, all the levels are all part of a snapshot that is recallable. So that part of the puzzle is taken care of. In the comment section of Pro Tools, I write any analog gear and the signal path that it's, if, if the lead vocal is going through a 1073 and then 1176, that's written in the comment section. While I'm spending the three and a half minutes to, to run the tune, because obviously it has to play in real time towards the end uh, to be able to get it back in on a, on a stereo audio track in the Pro Tools, having been summed, you know, I, I take four or five cell phone, high-res cell phone pictures, crop them, and throw them in the, the session folder. And um, I really do have it down to about, I want to say, 10 minutes. Uh, I'll put up this song. I'll read, set, you know, set, the, set the patches up for the analog gear. Um, look at four or five photos. I'm not, you know, I am tempted occasionally to use a million <laughs> hardware processors, but I try to stay in the range of five or six outboard pieces. And, you know, plus a, a stereo EQ and a stereo compressor on the way back in. And, um, and I do feel, I don't, this is not about zeros and ones versus, you know, summing and, and, you know, is it accurate? And, and am I just liking transformer distortion? I, I'm disinterested in all of that. I, I really, what gets me is I like the workflow and when I use it, my stuff comes out better. That doesn't mean it's that way for everybody. I know that. And if there's a certain project where I know there's going to be a lot of swapping files and going back and forth and, and revisions, you know, I'll mix it in the box. I, I, no problem, you know, with that. I have, that's another issue. I have too many plugins. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's, it's almost crippling, but I've really gotten to love this process. You know, there's often a DBX 160 on a bass. There's a 1073, maybe on a lead vocal there, you know, and not much more, you know, a, a couple more, a tube compressor here or there, you know? Yeah. 
And then the, the sound of the summer, the sound of the Neve summer has, you know, it's, it's basic, basically a, you know, a transformer output summing amp that sounds a lot like a console. And um, I know what it feels like to drive that circuit a little bit and to get results that I like, not, you know, not crazy distortion, but just to warm things up a little. And, and it's the way I enjoy working. Okay, last question, Kevin. What's the best piece of advice that maybe you learned along the way or somebody imparted to you? Well, of course I knew this was coming because I'm a fan of your yeah. podcast. Oh, thank you. I alternate between two answers, but but the one, and it's in sync with our discussions about education, I guess. So my dad didn't get the music thing. You know, like he was, okay, you know, he was supportive and all, beyond supportive when I think about it, when I had a studio, I had a studio in his basement in, in Queens in a row house and he would go out and work the neighbors. So they weren't pissed off when the <laughs> drums are too loud, but so beyond supportive, but, but he was like, look, if you really want to do music as a, as a career and, and I have, I have not earned a dollar since I had a paper route that didn't relate to music. So he said, just, just finish a four year degree. And do it for no other reason than if you do want to make a left turn or, you, or you're looking for other opportunities when you're 30 or 35 or whatever, that you've got that behind you and you can, and you, can you know, kind of move from that point. Because I was ready. You know, my band was working five nights a week. What do I need college for? Yeah. You know, I really was dying not to do it. And it did take me five years, five and a half years and a summer to finish college, but, and, and I will say this for the 10 years after college, no one ever asked me if I went to college or where I went to college or what my degree was in because I was making records in studios. But when I went and decided, you know, I might want to teach this stuff. All of a sudden I already had a college degree. I can enroll in a master's program and, and, you know, get an education master's quickly and do, and, you know, so it was great advice because that whole second chapter could not have happened had I not completed an undergraduate degree when I was in my 20s rather than just letting it go because I wanted to be on tour or in a studio. You can find out more about Kevin at theworkshopeast.com. That's the workshop. Workshop has two P's and an E. W-O-R-K-S-H-O-P-P-E, east.com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Remember that you can learn all about the latest in music, audio, and production news when you sign up for my newsletter at bobbyosinski.com. There, you'll also find out about openings for my latest online classes and special events. That's bobbyosinski.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab or Go to bobbyownercircle.com, or you can find it in Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyownercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Bye.